The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. How do you want to be remembered? What do you want to be your legacy? Hey listeners, welcome to In the Arena. I'm Jackie Goldberg. And I'm Leah Smart. And today we are here with Hobie Darling, who's a senior executive at Logitech and the co-founder of Liminal Collective, which we're so excited to talk more about. Hobie was actually introduced to us by my manager, Jess, who worked with him at Logitech. And all she kept saying was, you have to talk to him. You have to meet him. So we decided, okay, great, we're going to meet him. Uh, So today you'll hear more about why, but Hobie's focus is really about helping others and people reach peak performance. And one of the great things he said to us when we were prepping for this episode was that his real focus is helping people go from great to legendary. So Hobie, we are so excited to have you on today and to hear more about what that means. I love it. Jackie, well, it's a a pleasure to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much. Welcome. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of the interview, we have a tradition on In the Arena where we like to do some speed dating questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So are you open to going In the Arena with us? I'm in the arena. Let's go. You're in it. And I and I will tell our listeners that all of you most likely know at this point that in the arena comes from the quote man in the arena by Teddy Roosevelt. And we were super excited and knew this was just kin for for us to be meeting all together because Hobie has the quote printed out on his desk. So love that so much. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's one that I look at a lot. I mean, I think we see with a lot of high performers, a lot of it is that courage to get in the arena, mm-hmm. you know, to, to be able to step in with that enthusiasm, with the devotion, hit that worthy cause and be okay with uh, the dust and sweat and blood on the brow. So yeah, so much better than being the spectator, right? Absolutely. So much more with Ryle. All right, cool. So I will kick us off with our rapid fire. Uh, so first question, where is the most beautiful place that you've ever visited? Most beautiful place, probably the 12 Apostles in Australia, which if you haven't been there, is just an absolutely beautiful, craggy shoreline that has 12 sort of large rocks coming out of it, often just overcast with clouds. But I think just that, you know, feels so small and such a a beautiful place. Sounds beautiful. Natural beauty. Absolutely amazing. That's right. I loved Australia when I went, so I did not get to the 12 Apostles, but I will add to my list. Always need something to go back for. I know, right? Except for that long flight, Hobie. I don't know. (laughs) Still questionable for me. All right. So what's something you've done that you originally thought was beyond your limits? Mm, That's a good question. Uh, So I was pretty lucky to grow up in a household where pretty much I was taught you can do anything, Hobie. So I probably grew up a dreamer in a lot of ways. I think like most people... Even with that background, though, definitely put governors on what I thought was possible. Probably the biggest one for me around that was academically. I think I grew up kind of that jock kid versus being the smart kid. So one thing I really never thought was possible was achieving at a high academic standard. So, you know, being kind of this kid from a a small town and then being able to 
get graduate degrees and go to Columbia and Northwestern and Berkeley. Those were probably things I just never thought were possible, both being from a small place, but also I just hated math growing up. And so to be able to get MBAs and some other degrees, they're so math heavy was probably a big one. That would probably be my mental one. And then I probably have to share too, you know, so much of what I enjoy is on the physical side. And so each year we kind of have 15 or 20 of us that work out together in Park City in the mornings and a couple that are around the country. But we do it out of this idea of a crucible event each year. And, and part of the rules of that are it has to be something that's not possible for you today and it scares you a little bit. So some of those crucibles are things that definitely push the limits. Some fun ones, you know, swimming in the English Channel and rucking to St. Lo in Normandy to the Run Swim Odyssey Endurance Challenge. It was like a 40-mile run and swim, some 50K obstacle races. But I think some of those big ones where you just went, man, I don't know if we're able going to be able to do this, but maybe even better, we weren't going to be able to do it as a team and we're able to pull it together as a team. Wow, that's huge. And I love this idea of the crucible event. We'll talk more about that. But I remember when I read your bio on Liminal, it said it was like, if Hobie's not walking his dog, he's running on a 45 mile trail run. <laughs> that's really normal. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that. That is true. Yeah. Wow. So much goodness there. I'm, I'm excited to talk more about pushing the limits and pushing our own limits and thinking through that. But also, awesome, like so much pride, I think, for the academic stuff, like thanks for sharing that. And something that also came up for me, uh, Jeff Weiner, who uh, used to be the CEO of LinkedIn and, and recently resigned a few months ago, he's now the executive uh, chairman, but he tells a story how every night before bed, his parents, when they tucked him in, told him, you can do anything you want in this world. You can be anything, you can be anyone. And he talks about that as one of the number one influences in his success in life, his career, but personal success, all of it. And so see a lot of um, alignment there. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting you say that, Jackie, because I had the same thing. I mean, I had a mom and I can still remember the nighttime, you know, sort of nursery rhyme slash phase, you know, but it started with that, you know, you're strong as a lion, powerful as a tiger, you know, but essentially you're capable of anything. And I think you're right, especially at a young age, you hear that enough and then you do it. And then, you know, whether it's a sporting event or it's at school, then a high five comes after it and you really believe it so much. Of course, you internalize it. So important. Awesome. So, well, this is actually, so on the physical side, what is your go-to sport or athletic activity now? Um, as you said, you grew up, you know, as a jock, you played activities or sports sports your, your, throughout life, but what are you up to right now? Sure. Well, I should probably say I grew up as a very poor jock, i.e. I was never that good, but I always sort of thought of myself that way. You know, today it's probably changed. I used to be much more the bat and ball kid. Now, getting to live in Park City up in the mountains, definitely a lot more around outdoor endurance, trail running, mountain biking, love to throw in some high intensity interval training, kind of CrossFit style type stuff. And like I say, we're usually trying to do it around some big event. So it's not just, you know, kind of go train to train, it's go train to do something with a group. So usually it'll kind of, you know, if it's a big swim year, or if it's a big trail running year it'll push that direction a little bit, but always kind of that full body functional movement type stuff. Yeah. Such a difference when you train with a goal in mind and somewhere to go, right? Training with intent. I mean, I think you hit it. You know, it's so, it's so easy. I think so many people get into, oh, I just need to go train or, oh, I need to get up and go to the gym this morning. But when you actually have intent to that, the dedication becomes much easier to do. So yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot. It's like having intent and then having a team around you 
I think are two of the greatest lessons I've, I've learned around that to be able to do some, some pretty cool things. Yeah. Jackie and I were training for the marathon, which just passed because it did not happen, but we're doing it next year. So I think just learning that lesson of like having even one other person that I was doing this with, and even with it being a year away, it's it's funny because I'm still running a lot and I'm like, what's my job? My job is to keep myself in good enough shape to be able to train for a marathon in July of next year. Like it feels so easy to repeat that and just continue to run because of it. Totally. What marathon are we all training for? The New York Marathon. Oh, you were. So you had a big one coming up. Yeah. Anniversary, like whole shebang. So and this was also a two-year goal because Leah and I, so so New York has a program called Nine Plus One. If you run nine races through New York Roadrunners and then volunteer for one in a year, you automatically qualify for the next year in 2020. So January of 2019, Leah and I signed up for all of our races. We ran everyone together. And we qualified. And then, so then it was like a two year goal because we had that year and then we had to start training. But once COVID hit and things were up in the air, it was, it was pretty sad, you know, getting that calendar update or reminder on this past Sunday, November 1st or November 2nd, that New York City Marathon. And I was like, wow, this, we would have been there, (laughs) but it rained here. So it actually was a little bit of a blessing, maybe. (laughs) So were both of you runners or how did you decide to do the marathon together? Yeah, I mean, we both, Jackie had run more long distance than I had. I grew up running track. And so I kind of had this goal at the end of 2018 that I wanted to start running more. And then Jackie was like, I'm doing this nine plus one. And we said, all right, let's sign up together. And like she was doing it and I, I jumped on board and I had never run more than three miles ever. And I think I cheated during that. <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting you say that, Leah, because I think, you know, even in that, when you think about that transition from being a high performer and running track to going, now I'm going to do something different, you know, and even the lessons in high performance in that, where you go, you don't just throw a marathon on the books going, hey, I may have been great at running short distances, but now I'm going to do something that requires a training plan, that requires the dedication, and things you said, requiring a friend to be there and go, okay, I'm going to get up and get this going. Yeah. I mean, you talked about team before with your events that you do and like having an accountability partner, having someone to do this with, it, it definitely helps in, in terms of motivation and just having that person. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's interesting, even in that, just with the, you know, this Park City group that we have, that's just kind of 15 or 20 people that are pretty consistent all go socially distance workout. It's usually at 530 or six in the morning. So it's kind of dark and cold here. But I mean, it was just two nights ago. And I was going to take Tuesday off. My ankle's kind of been bumming me out a little bit. Doesn't feel great. And, you know, one of the people sent me a text like, hey, are we on tomorrow or not? Like, let's go. And I went from, you know what, I'm just going to kind of sleep in tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be a little bit of just a, a recharge day to send out an email to the rest of the group of let's go. And it may have been the most beautiful morning in Park City that we've had all season. Just stars out. We were running in the mountains. And I think you know, you just hit it. It's like that person, that group that inspires you to get up and get going. So important. I know at least for me. Yeah, it's been huge, huge for us too. And we'll continue to be over the next year until the marathon happens. All right, Hobie, one more question, then we're going to jump in. What is one thing on your bucket list that might surprise people, maybe even people who know you? Mm, That's a good question. I mean, I think most people who know me know I love things like movement, love travel, love sports. So it'd probably be something that would be outside of that, that my friends don't even think of me around. So I think it would probably be two things that really come to mind around that are 
one, I've always had a dream, probably since I was at Nike, of looking at all the sketches that Mark Parker would do up on the walls of Nike, of shoe designs and so forth, of being able to sketch really well is something that I've never been able to do is, you know, sort of a different part of my brain than being an executive. So I, I definitely get excited about that one. And then the second one, I'm always threatening my kids with this because they're both pretty good musicians and have really good musical ears. I played saxophone for a number of years, kind of from middle school all through high school. And then when I graduated from high school, I was like, oh my gosh, I never want to play that again. You know, it wasn't the, the cool thing to do. And so I'm always threatening and, and can't wait to when the right time to pull the saxophone back out and, and be able to get a little jazz band going. I love that. I used to play cello and I did the same thing. I tossed it away and now I'm like, oh God, why did I do that? So that's that's one of my my bucket lists too. I uh, love we'll, we'll play together. It'll it'll be a good jam, little cello, little alto saxophone. We'll be rocking it. It'd be great. Wait, one quick thing I just want to say, Hobie, I just started the book Shoe Dog. So Phil Knight's uh, autobiography. And I, I think I'm like a hundred and something pages in, but it's still called Blue Ribbon. So I'm like, I know where Nike comes from from the beginning of the book, but I'm excited to like get to that next phase. So just talking about, you know, or hearing that you worked at Nike and some of your experiences there just like resonates right now because I'm really, I'm reading about it and I feel so connected to it. It's a great, I mean, I think that is one of the best entrepreneurial books out there because I think you read so many entrepreneurship books, you know, and it's all about just the glory and, you know, made this billion dollar company where we inspired billions of people. And I think Phil Knight did a magical job on that of going, it was hard. And you know, not only was it hard, there were times where our values were tested and, you know, we even did some things that were a little shady to get by and this is what it looked like. But I think that nitty gritty back to in the arena, you know, of like fully being in the arena and this is what it's like to build something great. Yeah. And also just the purpose that he had and the meaning he had just shows how much commitment there is and what you can do when you stay committed, no matter how tough things get. It's just such a life lesson. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially when your you know, initial feedback on that from your professors is that's a terrible idea. You know, you're never going to beat your Japanese competitors on this. And so not even a, yeah, great job. Go chase it. It's just that soul desire that goes, yep. I, I can go make this happen. Yeah, super inspiring. All right, so tell us, Hobie, who are you? Who is Hobie, darling? What do we need to know? Wow, starting with big questions, Leon. I, I like you. No, no messing around. You're in the arena. You got to start. You got to start big. <laughs> I mean, I think personally what I identify with first and probably have the, the greatest pride but also humility around is I always think first, I'm a father, I'm a spouse. That's where I get my greatest inspiration Our from my kids. I have a 10-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old daughter. And I just, I love nothing more than coaching them, being their lacrosse coach, being there as they hit their highs and lows. So that's a big part of me. I think you learn a lot about me just with where I live. I live up in the mountains in Park City. I mean, we just love the outdoors, love nature, love the creativity that Sundance brings. And it's a place, you know, just from an athletic sports orientation, that it feels like 20% of the population is an Olympian. You're running up a mountain and you think you're clipping along and someone goes past you at, you know, significantly faster and you get up to the top of the mountain and are asking them where they're from. They're like, Oh yeah, I was a silver medalist in uh, the Vancouver Olympics. So it's a, it's a great place for that. You know, and then I, I love things like travel. I've been really fortunate to live abroad in Australia and Mexico and Greece. So I think that international vibe is a big part of, of who I am. 
and who I've become. So that's, you know, that's probably my personal side. You know, I'd almost pull back as you asked that question because it's an exercise I was just redoing the other day. But it was a question around, you know, what are your top three values that identify you, you know, that could really just be you if someone heard them, they'd be like, oh, that's Hobie Darling. I know who that is, not sort of just generic. You know, so I often think back to that when someone asks who I am. And so for me, that was like, I am at my best and I know I am performing at my highest. And I said, one, when I'm inspiring, I mean, I love being able to be an amplifier of others and being service to others makes me feel great. Number two was really being in that caring situation, not just sort of being a, you know, a passing thing or transactional, but really being deep with people or a cause. And then my last one was around growing. So I always like, you know, what's the next? What am I doing? How am I getting better? How are the people around me getting better? So that's a, that's a big one for me on who I am that I think really defines myself. And then I guess the last one I would say, you know, there's probably the one where people start most is probably their career journey, et cetera. You know, I might actually put that last as I am, but, you know, for me, so much has been about just being around great people who've inspired me, you know, and, and that could be really random, but the beautifulness of it, and I grew up in this tiny little small town, you know, definitely more orchard than, uh, than people. I think I graduated with 53 other people had no desire to go to college. I mean, really just went to college because I wanted to play sports. Got there for a year, dropped out of school, you know, one that few people knew or know. But, you know, that was a time for me where I felt like I, I really had to find myself and, and where, I, where I wanted to be and who I wanted to be. So I went and lived in Mexico for a while and, uh, you know, learned Spanish. And just, I think, again, kind of got that, who, who do I want to be? Who am I? Is what we early and almost to your question. You know, then came back and I've just been, you know, super fortunate to, as I say, work with some great teams, but also at some great companies from Volcom back in the day, which is one of the early action sports companies, to being up at Nike and getting to lead a couple divisions of Nike, to being the CEO of Skull Candy, to now doing what I'm doing, where it's probably bringing together almost all of my passions at Logitech and as a founder of Liminal Collective with Liminal just really being all around, how do we help individuals, teams, and organizations create this humanity 2.0, but really this leap from where we are today to where we can be in the future. Wow. wow. Thank you. So appreciate the scope of your answer and love that you didn't start with career. Leah and I were actually talking about this last week is that so many times, and, and you see this in New York a lot too, when you say like, tell us about yourself or you know what's going on. Like people always start with their career. And it's it's like feels very defining for a lot of people is like what I do what I do is is what defines me. And I love that you you flipped that around, right? And recognizing that actually it was finding yourself, it's being intentional about living out your values every day, and that is what guides you to being in a career that you love and that is so fulfilling to you because you're living that out day to day with who you are versus what you do. Well, I think what you said there, Jackie, it's interesting because I take one as a point of reference, you know, on New York, and maybe it's even a point of reference versus Park City. And as we look around the nation, you know, I, I think in Park City, it's almost a, if you ask somebody what they do, it's looked down on. Like what most people ask here is like, you know, what bike do you ride? What mountain do you ski? What, you know, what do you love? And so it's interesting. I think even to your point, like orientation of where you are, how people put you in boxes. And I mean, I, I think as we know, we all 
you know, have very Aristotelian brains that want to organize and go, Jackie is this, you know, Leah is this, and be able to make that simple and easy versus going, no, we're a lot of things, you know, and we're a lot of things to different people. I'm a different thing to my 12-year-old daughter than I am to my colleagues in Liminal. And those are very different relationships. But, you know, just from the neuroscience of how our brain works, we want to categorize. You know, it's interesting even in that, like we were talking about, we have a, a new offense at Logitech called the Elite Performer Offense that's working with some of the best athletes, activists, you know, actors, musicians in the world, et cetera. And one of the things that's been so cool to see across it and working with some of these people, you know, is even initially when we went in, it was like, hey, we want to bring you in to look at your biggest dreams around how you're a musician. And the person would go, yeah, but I don't think of myself as a musician. I think of myself as an entrepreneur. I think of myself as a creator. I think of myself as a father or mother. I think of myself as an activist. And I think that's a big change, you know, even over the last, you know, let's call it 10 years, decade, however we want to think about a generation, is that part that goes, you know, Jackie Lee, don't put me in a box. Like, I know you want to put me there, but I'm so much more than that box. And so I, I think even in that process, I, I, I think it makes all of us better if we can appreciate around it too. Totally. Couldn't agree more. Curious, you know, you hit on Liminal Collective, which is, I think you founded it. You can tell us a little bit more about how, maybe how you got that started, but you talked about Humanity 2.0. What is, can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I will pull it back just a little bit to Liminal because the origin story is important in that, you know, a group of us who I would say had been very successful at things that we'd done you know, me kind of in the the business, innovation, creativity side. My other co-founder, Andy Walsh, who had started Red Bull's high performance group, had been with the U.S. Olympic Committee at a, at a very high level, Australian Institute of Sport, when they're pulling that together for the Sydney Olympics. You know, and I, and I think for us, we were both trying to go, what does it look like if we can take what we've learned, let's just call it working with these elite 1% type groups to make them better. What would it look like if we could really make a dent and instead of just making them, to your point as you started, go from great to legendary, but be able to take their inspiration and what we learned from them and what they've created and be able to uplift the other 7 billion people on the planet. And so that's why we think about it in that humanity 2.0 part goes you know, if we really want to make substantial change or make that dent in the universe or, you know, in our humanity, if we can line up starting with the individual, let's make individuals better and then let's make teams better and organizations better off of that, that then empowers us to really be able to have this much bigger framework of what could it look like around the globe to truly improve humanity. And I think, you know, when you start to get together, the people that are in liminal and the greater collective and it's some of the you know greatest minds of our time in it whether it's professors from stanford and northwestern and neuroscientists and special forces and athletes and surgeons and you know you kind of go this massive interdisciplinary group of people that you know get excited about this bigger idea they don't go you know oh i just want to do this small thing they go man let's put out a moonshot idea of truly how do we up level a planet or up level, you know, a species for lack of a better word. And then people start to go, oh my gosh, now I can bring together science with research, with storytelling, with big events, with new ways of thinking, with, you know, new groups of people to do it. 
And so that's how we brought together Liminal and why we always kind of come back to that. You know, we may play uh, with that 1% performer a lot, but we really do it because we want to bring that inspiration and learning to everybody else. Hey, it's so interesting to hear you talk about that 1%. I love the phrase up-level a species. I was like, oh my God, I'm inspired. Yeah, that's huge. You know, for for anyone who feels like they're not part of that 1%, it often is like, you know, it's those people that, you know, you, you meet on the slopes who are like, I was a silver medalist or a gold medalist. We look at them as sort of this elite part of our species. And what I'm curious about, Hobie, is, what are you finding in them that's common that allows them to reach this 1%? And then, of course, you, you're probably going to know, or you're pro- you probably know I'm going to want to know, and I don't know if you know, how do we get everyone else to get there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And, and a couple of things that I would start off with on it is, one, there's a tremendous amount of research around this piece. And if you look at it, there is no clear answer across it. It's not one of those parts where you go, here's the 10 step plan, you know, on the, the front of a magazine to high performance or winning a gold medal, et cetera. So I would take that, you know, number, number one across it, you know, and, and I would even frame it in people get to greatness in a lot of different ways. I mean, we see some people that, you know, early in their career, the Mozarts of the world, you know, some of the early mathematicians that are in their teens that are doing, you know, this unbelievable work. You see other people, that very much later in their career become amazing. You know, you see some people who have one big accomplishment and are remembered for that, others who do, you know, lots of different things. So I think it's important to put that in context as well. And then the third thing, you know, I just put in context as you asked that question, Lee, and again, I'm sort of pulling this back to what does that 1% have in common is how we like to think about it a lot is that we frame this in the idea of long-term high performers. So long-term 1%. So people who are flourishing and thriving over time versus people who, for lack of a better word, you know, maybe that one hit wonder, maybe for a very short amount of time in their overall career doing amazing things, but then burn out. So who are those people that we go, wow, over a career, They've been exceptional at what they've done and have really thrived through throughout that. So if I think about that in that frame, again, no, no 10 part, um, you know, frame to this. But I think the thing that we do see a lot and I'll, I'll sort of break this down, I don't know, five, six, seven things, you know, that we think about, you know, and one's the obvious talent helps. And no matter, you know, and no matter what you do, there's something to be said for straight up talent when talking about the best in the world, right? If we're talking sports, just to make it easy, really hard to take someone who is 100% slow twitch muscles and put them and say, we're going to win the 100 meter gold medal in the Olympics, right? So there is just something talent wise that I think some people don't acknowledge. You just got to, yep, talent matters around what some of this is. I think once you get through that, though, you know, there are some frameworks that become really important that you can look at. And and I'll start with a little bit how we work with high performers around that. So generally, the first thing we do and we see in high performers is they really know themselves, right? And you think about a human being the most complex thing on the planet, you know, how do we deeply know ourselves? And, and that could be around, you know, how do I as an individual, whether it's Jackie or Leah, which will be totally different than someone else, how do I best know how to set goals for myself? You know, how do I know how to control my self-talk and emotional control? How do I best know how to motivate me, 
right? What may motivate me may be totally different than what motivates you. How do I think about being in a peak performance state? What are we going to call that? Flow states or zones of proximal development? However we think about that. But, you know, all of those just go back to that of I have to be, if I'm going to be the best in the world at what I do over time, I have to be a student of myself, right? So pulling that back and going almost one is how do I get so good at me that I can then be great at the craft that I want to be, that I want to be great at. So I, I would put that just kind of going talent, really knowing yourself. The third one that I think you see, you know, in all these fields, and, I'll, and again, I'll put it in a bucket under, let's just call it positive psychology, you know, but I think there's a fundamentals piece that these people who are operating at a high level over time have a massive amount of grit and dedication. You know, we can talk about that from the Angela Duckworth work, et cetera, but make it as basic as, you know, you go see a Michael Jordan, you go see the best in the world. And what are they doing? They are dedicated to their craft, right? Back to that enduring, consistent effort, even in struggle to get where they're going. So something to be just said on, they just know where they're going and they keep going. Second one I would say is really important out of that that we see high in the research is around self-efficacy. I know both of you are experts around that, but this idea of high performers are generally really good at going, I'm going to control what I can control. I'm not going to worry about things I can't control, but I have a massively positive outcome belief around that. So I'm not worrying about other things. I'm laser focused on what I can control, but I believe that the outcome is going to be really good and optimistic. Some great work by Bandura at Stanford and some other places around that that backs that up as well. You know, and then I think the, the last one that I would just hit on kind of on that fundamentals of performance with positive psych would be around mindset, coachability, the Carol Dweck pieces, you know, and, and I just pull that even back. You know, those are the things that go back to it's okay to fail. It's more important to have courage and take the shot than it is to worry about if I miss it. Right. And so I can be the best me that I can be. And they're not worried about that, that outside world. You know, I mean, it, it always sort of pulls me back to that Michael Jordan quote, which I think, you know, should be on the front of mindset and Carol, Carol Dweck, but around the, you know, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I think it's, I've lost almost 300 games, 26 times I've been trusted to take the game winning shot and missed, you know, I failed over and over. That's what makes me succeed. So I think, you know, just back to those. And then the last one that I think gets overlooked a lot in that performance psychology piece is around self-compassion and empathy. We work with a lot of great athletes, a lot of great performers. And one of the things they have that's really positive is, again, that ability, that drive. I want to do better. I'm neurotic about, you know, getting that 1% every day. The flip side to that is, you know, the quick emotional toilet bowl of when it's not going my way you know, I fall and I'm not great and I'm not doing good. So that ability to have the self-talk around compassion and empathy of, you know what, I'm giving my best. That's okay. This is what I have today. That's okay around those. So I sort of put that in a bucket, like I say, in, in uh, positive psychology. Four, we talked about it. Great performers have great teams around them. You know, a lot of the time one person gets the glory but it's the team that makes it happen. You look at that, you know, you think about a driver in F1 and the driver gets all the glory, but there are, you know, probably a hundred people on that team that have made the car run, are in the pit, are part of the nutrition, are part of the team, you know, so what is that great team that's around it? It, it, it takes me back. And I, I, I know both of you, just even what you've talked around with your marathon piece, 
back to that, you know, surround yourself with five great people or you're the average of those five great people, you know, is a big part on that team, that team piece. You know, six, I would probably say, and this is one that evolves again, back to that. We're talking flourishing and thriving over time, but they are people who have a bigger why, you know, but it happens later in their career often. So, you know, a lot of times we'll work with younger athletes or younger creatives and, you know, they're almost looking for that bigger why and they're frustrated because they don't have it, you know, or people are going like, gosh, you just care about yourself. You haven't hit this bigger why. What usually happens, though, is over time, those best in the world, they start to go again. I want to be great, but how do I get to legendary? Back to that powerful question. What do I want my legacy to be? How do I want to be remembered that just starts to, to open that up and make it bigger? And then I think the last one I, you know, I would hit, you know, and, and we've talked about it in pieces of this, you know, it's just creativity and courage. You know, I think that ability to go out and just try new things, learn from others, but do it your way. You know, that way that just takes not what somebody else did, what the person before you did, but that that brings forth the best you. And I think we see this all the time with people who change the world by how they play the game or how they play the music, you know, and it's the shift from what was going on in music to then you have an Elvis that sounds totally different or a Beatles who then sounds totally different off of that changing how we think about music in sports. It's a Wayne Gretzky playing hockey in a totally different way or Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson to just rethink how it's played. So I think that part, you know, never just forgetting the very best in the world. Don't just look at what came before them. They have the courage to go, I'm going to try this a little bit differently. I'm going to try this in a way that I think is going to get the best out of me. And they're comfortable, you know, in those liminal places of in transition, reinvention, doing something different and originality across those. So I'll pause there, but if I had to, you know, kind of pick seven, those would be my, those would be my big seven. I love hearing those. I'm curious because I think we probably want to dive in to all seven, (laughs) which is, which is, uh, may not be possible today, but before we dive in, God, Hobie, the 1% sounds tiring. (laughs) I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I want to be in it. And holy crap, I also know how prevalent burnout is right now and how much so many of us are facing this year. So I'm just, I'm curious the role that you see rest, you know, and maybe that falls into self-compassion, but how are these one percenters also giving their minds, bodies, and souls a break? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. And and I take it back to that piece that goes, We want to see people thriving over time, not just I'm great in the moment, you know, and if you think about that from let's take a corporate career, since all of of us working at corporations and you go, we will probably work from somewhere around the time, you know, let's call it we're 18, 20, whatever, until we're 65 and maybe until we're 100 based upon what we know now and especially know about happiness, you know, doesn't really come from retiring So let's say we're going to have 80-year careers. And you think about that and you pull back for a second. You go, wow. So I want to be high-performing for 80 years. And I think it reframes how you think about, you know, what is, to use the where you guys are going back to, like what is a marathon? What is a sprint? If we pull that back and, you know, I'll, I'll pull it all the way back to, and it's a great article to read, 
you know, the old Jim Lair and Tony Schwartz article of corporate athlete that was in Harvard Business Review, I think all the way back in 2001, you know, but it's that idea that goes, if we look out as most people, it's called fans for a moment, and we look at great performers, we go, oh my gosh, they are amazing. Look what that athlete did on the court. Look what that, you know, player did on the pitch or on the field. And look at what they're doing for their career. And you go, they're on an annual three-year, for an Olympian, four-year cycle of going, what's my goal? How am I going to train to get there? What does it look like within that training so that I'm improving every day? When is game day and how am I going to be ready for game day? How do I then regenerate after game day, which is where all the improvement comes. It doesn't come during the training. It comes during the regeneration piece. And then I'm repeating that over and over and over and over again. And so I think you pull that back and let's put ourselves just for a second and go, you know, if Jackie and Leah said, no, I want to look more like a corporate athlete than just someone who goes to work, what would that look like? You know, and I would advocate going first, Think of this is not about a one week sprint. This is about an 80 year career. So let's just change our frame of reference, right? And let's just go, the past is not what we're doing going forward. This is the long term. And so I need to be in a space where if I look out 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, I'm performing really well. So if I'm an athlete in that, again, what am I doing? I'm in a constant goal setting, constant training, constant game day, constant regeneration. And if I'm not getting those, I'm not performing at my best, right? So if you hop right into the regeneration piece, I mean, what I tell people that are in corporate America is, yeah, there are times where it is game day. It is absolutely game day. You know what? You're dropping a new product. It's game day. You know, for you all, hey, we have a podcast. It's game day. You know, we have this, some uh, CEO who's having their IPO. It's game day. You know what? You plan game day. But what do you do after game day when you're beat up? You regenerate and you appreciate it and go, I was just in game day. Now I need to regenerate. And I think the worst thing we talk about is even when people say, I'm going on vacation. You know, I'm doing this. And I wish we could reframe that to go, no, I'm in regeneration mode because regeneration mode is growth mode. This is where I go from this game to then being the best in the next game. I have to regenerate so that I'm on an uphill trend. And I think then you pull that all the way back to how do I know when I'm regenerating best? That might be different for Hobie than it is for Jackie than it is for Leah. You know, for me, I know knowing myself, that's get outside and run in nature. I know that's be with my kids. I know that's travel. I know that's I love to read. So put myself in those situations. But what are those things where you go, yep, this is regeneration and it is on my calendar. And just like if I were a pro athlete, it is an essential part of my training. And we've just got to ditch the part that goes, I'm going to you know, go from graduating from grad school and I want to retire as fast as I can. And I'm just going to burn it as hard as I can you know, across that. Because one, we're never going to get to performance even in that shorter term. But we've got to rethink how we just think about, I think, thriving and flourishing for an entire life across that. Such good perspective to have on that. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, 
TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. What I found so intriguing by the seven things that you listed around, you know, being a high performer is how internal they are. They're they're all self-based, right? They're they're inner work. Whereas from the you know, outside perspective, looking at an athlete, you see just the physical and you don't necessarily look or really, unless you do your research and you really know like how much of the inner work is being done on a daily basis to reach that peak performance. And so I love it because we all are capable of doing this, right? If we, if we want to do it, I think going along the lines and bring this into the corporate world, you know, this 1% and let's take athletes. Cause I know this is, you know, a, an easier one to work with. They have coaches, they have people who are helping them through this all the time. And in the corporate world, you can say we have managers, we have mentors, we, we, we have coaches as well, but because this is so individual based and then team based and then humanity based, like what would you almost recommend like, or what works in a company if it is really starting with the individual, how do you, make those impacts, you know, on a larger scale in the corporate world? Yeah, such such a great question, Jackie. And I think one, it has to start with a culture that goes, we want to be a high performing culture. And I think a lot of a lot of companies may be high performing, but haven't made that statement that goes, it is important for us to be a high performing culture. Because once you say that part, it drops you into going, okay, how do I do that? I now have a goal, but how do I do it? It's not just, you know, we're sort of just paddling around, but we don't have a location that we're paddling to. So I think that's the first part in it. The second part that I would say around it is I would pull back and go, let's look at how great athletes are performing over a career. And I think as a company, you know, and and all companies, you know, if we take that first step that goes, we want to be a high performing company. Then we go, let's first off of that, create really high performing individuals. And I would look at it very similar to a sports team. You know what? If you're coming into an organization and you're our most valuable asset and as people are probably the highest OPEX on a P&L, 
we need to treat them as our most valuable asset. And that sounds cliche, but even when you go to a place like special operations, you know, one of the first things that you hear is the most important asset is the human, right? We can't go do anything, even in these things that are unimaginable, never thought done, because the number one asset is the human. So I think we pull that back, you know, things like where you go, you know, should people have coaches at companies? Probably, you know, should we look at when we look at high performance for an individual as they come in, should they probably all be taking some kind of psychometric, you know, evaluation that helps them understand themselves better, whether that's vias or discs or enneagrams or we can big, but it starts to reflect back on ourselves. Probably. Should we then be taking those learnings and going, I'm now going to learn those for myself, but I'm also going to share that out to my team so I can go, I understand myself better, but now my team actually understands how to get the best out of me as well, I think is really important. You know, it's, it's interesting and it's going a little tangential here, but like one of the things that we do that we found so effective is what we do is called an iOS for yourself. And the idea being you can buy almost any piece of technology and it will come with directions on how to operate it. Yet again, you go back to the human is the most complex thing that the world has ever seen. And there are no directions. And if I asked even two people who have sat next to each other in offices or cubicles for 30 years, and I asked them very basic questions about the, how to get the best out of each other, they probably wouldn't know. They probably wouldn't know what the person want to be remembered for, what their three highest values are, how to communicate with them under stress, how to give feedback, any of those. And so, you know, we often, you know, and I'm happy to happy to share it, you know, with you and listeners, you know, it's just this part that goes, hey, here's the operating system of me. Here's how to get the best out of me. And it's both a reflective piece that goes, I have to think about that because very few people actually go, how do I get the best out of me? And then the second part that goes, how do I share that with others? And so now we're in a team that's really going, I know how to operate you. You know how to operate me, man. We're we're headed for high performance here. So I'm curious, Hobie, you know, as I'm thinking about this, one of the things that, you know, running track when I was young or thinking about sports, um, just staying in this family and then kind of translating that over to the working world. How do we, as we democratize human performance, as you said, how do we think about kind of allowing people to be who they are without pushing everyone into the 1%? Because I imagine it's like, you know, if everyone goes to the 1%, then there becomes a smaller 1%, right? So what is what does it look like to kind of engage democratization of peak performance and also allow everyone to have different levels of what 100% of their performance looks like? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. And, and it's one, I think, even you take the Nikes of the world and the Adidas of the world, and you look at their marketing, how it's changed over time, you know, where it used to be put the very best in the world right out in front. They're the ones that inspire us. If you're not one of those, you know, put them off to the side. And I think even in, you know, sports, you've seen that change with how we get marketed to and and who we find our inspiration in. You know, what I I pull back on, and and I'll put it both in the research, but I think it's powerful when you think about it, you know, and it's all the way back to, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, some, what, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, where if you look at the very top of that, the top of the pyramid, it's self-actualization, you know, and the definition of that generally, I'll paraphrase here, you know, but is that realization or fulfillment of one's talent and potentialities? So you go to your point, okay, it's really easy to get pulled into the 1% of, oh, I'm not that person. What does that look like? But if I think we can pull back to that self-actualization piece, 
at the top of the pyramid where you go, you know what, whatever I am doing, it's the best me, right? I think it goes right back to growth mindset in the same way. It's, hey, we care about process, not outcome. Um, across those, I'm always, you know, how do I get 1% better every single day? And so I think it's just a, re, a refocus on that. Yeah, it sort of sounds like, um, you know, you said defining for companies, we want to be a high performing company. And I wrote down, I want to be a high performing human. Yeah. <laughs> but that's as it relates to to me, which is such a great point. And back to Jackie's point of much of these seven things you said is the inner work and knowing ourselves. Yeah, I think it's the inner work. And I think it's, you know, pulling back to those things that goes one, if I am starting with do I know myself, but also, you know, where are some of those things? And, and generally where we find, you know, a lot of joy are things where, you know, sort of our mastery is equaling the challenge. I mean, that's sort of that definition of flow. And there is a part that goes, I generally find passion in things where I have some talent in it. You know what I mean? And so I think it's okay also for people to go and be drawn to things where they go, you know what? I'm really good at this. And that's okay. Even if someone says you should be doing this or you should be doing that, you know what, if I can link up where I have a lot of talent with where I have a lot of passion and own my inner game, gosh, I can get to a lot of self-actualization and be in a really good spot thriving. Yeah. And it just shows how individualized we all are. But then when we are all at our best, at our peak, collectively, we're elevating whatever humanity, right? That's humanity 2.0. When we, when we focus on the individual, you had said before people get to greatness in different ways. And then you kind of went through the seven uh, aspects of peak performance. And, you know, all of a sudden I was like, well, well, what is greatness? What does greatness mean to me? What does greatness mean to Leah? What does greatness mean to you? And how do each of us on our own define that? And is there one definition of what greatness is, or is that very much up to the individual to define for themselves? I just love that, Jack, because I think it, it also goes to, you know, sometimes people will make this stratification of high performance. That's for the elite. Thriving and flourishing, that's for the other 99%. And I think one of the things I believe strongly, and again, it goes with longevity, is we have to combine this idea of high performance with thriving and flourishing. And that's how we start to get to our best selves over time. That's how we start to get to lifting humanity and so, I mean, there's absolutely, you know, things where you go and, and we all see it. Some of the best athletes in the world come game day on that one day. They're not thriving. They're not flourishing. You know, they would actually, in some of the endurance athletes, look like cancer patients if you actually went in and did bloods on them, et cetera, because of where they are on game day. We might say they're very high performing on game day, but I don't know that that's what it looks like, you know, over time to be thriving and there can be ups and downs. So I'm certainly not discounting. I mean, the importance of, you know, what game day can look like on that. And they'll come back on that same thing of, hey, it's game day. Now I'm going to regenerate. I'll be back. Now I'm training. I'm periodized back to the next thing that I need to do. But I do think it's important how we take those two concepts, you know, and start to bring them together in better ways. Mm-hmm. Hobie, I don't know if you've read the book Guy, but a lot of what you're saying reminds me of this longevity, because the book is based on the fact that there are these areas in the world that are uh, blue zones where people live longer than everywhere else. And Okinawa is one. And one of the stories they share is, you know, the Ikigai is this mix of this passion, but also the purpose or the reason for being. And something as simple as someone going to go garden every day can be enough to be a reason for being, which can draw them out of bed, draw them forward. And it's more about the flourishing 
and the thriving than it is about the performance. And I think that's sometimes where people break is the kind of performance anxiety that we have at work, at home, in school, and this sort of like, you know, if I achieve X, then I'm enough versus am I thriving? Am I flourishing? Can I do the small thing with enough purpose to get me up out of bed every day and keep me going? Yeah, I mean, it's so true. And I think so much of that is framing to your part, whether you're, you know, talking about someone who's getting up to tend the garden, you know, I always come back to the story of, you know, the bricklayers, one who's talking about just laying bricks and the other who's laying bricks for someone to have their spiritual awakening, all doing the same things, but going, how am I framing this in a way, you know, that I feel so positive about my movement forward and I want to get up and I want to be the best that I can be. You know, on this topic of democratizing human performance, because Leah and I just found this so, just so incredible and, and are so intrigued by it. Uh, knowing, you know, how you're working with, let's say the 1%, the elite, but the vision or the mission is to really expand this to the 7 billion humans on this planet. What are you doing today to make that a reality? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I would say we're definitely on a journey for us we tend to always start at that 1% because that's what, you know, does push us. It raises the tent pole, what's possible for everything else. So, you know, we, we do spend a significant amount of time with those 1% groups going, what are your biggest dreams? How do we go fulfill them? What are humanity's boldest endeavors? How do we go achieve it? So that's where we always start. I think what we've found over time is we almost have to go back to how do, as humans, do we like to get information? How do we have behavior change? How are we inspired? And so now we've spent a lot more time doing things like storytelling. So we started a media group just recently, you know, instead of going, hey, let's write articles and put them out and people have to read them. Let's engage people in a storytelling way. You know, so we've started a, a podcast that we're doing right now with a major brand and a docu series. It's an original content production that we're doing around sort of places that inspire greatness and what does that look like. Doing a little bit of production on resilience and grit with a, kind of an A list star. So again, people get into the storytelling of it. But we're focusing there right now on how do we tell these grand stories. So everyone, you know, again. We don't want to go. We just want the 1%. We don't even want to go. We just want, you know, the 3 or 5%. But how do we reach people? And as, as humans, going all the way back to just this, how do we take advantage of our biology and neuroscience? We know that when we storytell, people store that information really well. So that's kind of the quest we're on of how do we democratize right now. And Hobie, if like, if I'm me and I don't get to like hang out with you every day and go go do all this work with you... And I'm listening to this, like inspired, what's something I can do now, like today or tomorrow that will help get me closer to peak performance for myself? Yeah, I love it. Um, I mean, one of the things I always think about is you can come up with really cool philosophical things, but as one of my partners say, what can I do on Monday to actually, to actually make this happen? And I think if I said one thing, it would be, how do I start the Leah game plan? You know, let's go right back to our, to our sports analogy or marathon analogy that goes, hey, here is my goal at some time, just as if I'm an athlete. If I'm an athlete, it's win the Super Bowl in this or whatever it is. You know, here's my goal. And I say this in starting as just a process. Here's my goal. Here's how I'm getting better to achieve that every single day. Here's the moment that matters or the couple moments during the season that matter around it. 
How am I putting together a plan around that that is on the calendar of how I'm going to make sure that I'm regenerating and that I'm now in a flow that goes, I'm going to start that on Monday and that's going to be till the rest of the year. I've got, you know, it's called three months till, uh, till the end of the year, actually two months now till the end of the year. And then on January 2nd, I'm going to redo that game plan of Leah so that I have a year in advance. Here's my goal. Here's my plan. Here's game day. And here's regeneration, I, I think helps. And then the second thing I would just say, and you're doing it with Jackie, and I know you're doing it with others, go find that team of people that you go, these are the people who I know are my peeps who are going to be right next to me, inspiring me, challenging me. But who is that cohort of people that I have right next to me to keep me going? Hobie, you opened up this episode today by asking a question to our listeners. And it was, how do you want to be remembered and what will be your legacy? And I'm curious, how do you want to be remembered? Yeah, I love flipping it right back to me, Jackie, <laughs> uh, on that. I mean, I think the biggest part goes back to my values that I that I started at the beginning that were around inspiring, around caring, and around growing. So I think the biggest thing, if it was in one sentence, is I think people would go, you know, I know that Hobie really cared about what he did in the community with his family in work and made everyone around him better. And if people said that, I would feel like that was a, a life well lived. Love it. Hobie, this has been great. I mean, I could dig in with you for another five hours on each of these topics that you talked about to get us to peak performance. But something that that I'm kind of taking away as a theme is this idea of greatness in everyone. And and I feel like that's where you're going with Humanity 2.0 and, and how do we kind of all awaken the greatness within each of us and allow ourselves to decide what that looks like and what how that measures uh, versus comparison to others while also being being inspired by others. So just thank you so much for giving us, you know, this this time to sit with you to learn more about what you're learning in the research and spending time with the top 1% that most of us don't get to spend time with, but you know, would love to steal a piece of their magic to create the life we want. So just appreciate you being here. And any final thoughts from you, Hobie, before we wrap up? I, I think just thank you both for putting this together. I mean, the greatest thing I think that you can do for us as we think about that humanity 2.0 is push out the message, communicate. You all have an audience as well as friends, as well as colleagues. You know, how do we get to a spot where we're lifting all ships and all boats so that we can make that dent in the universe? So thank you. Love it. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you so much, Hobie. Cheers. Awesome. And for our listeners, thanks for joining us on the journey. We are so excited to keep going. We've got more amazing guests. And, you know, if you want more of Hobie, you can find him on LinkedIn, look up Liminal Collective. So Hobie, I'm totally offering you up to, to our listeners, but I'm sure you're open to it. And if you want more of In the Arena, it's on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. And we will see you next time. Have a great day, everyone. <laughs>